Hope you have your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We will make our way to Ephesians 5, but we'll start at 2 and kind of arrive there here in a few minutes. As we get started in this new series, I know that some of you are big readers, and so I wanted to let you know that the title for this sermon series and some of the ideas itself came from a book by Pastor Andy Stanley. You may recognize his dad's name, Charles Stanley. This is his son. He wrote a book entitled The Best Question Ever. I read several months ago, and as I read through the book, just so many ideas kept popping into my mind about this best question ever in a sermon series. And each spring and fall, I go away for a few days and, and pray and plan my preaching calendar. And I just kept coming back to this idea, some of these thoughts on the best question ever. So if you uh, are a reader, I encourage you, this is a great book. It'll be a good read. It's a pretty quick read for you, uh, but some great stuff uh, that's in there that I will springboard off of in our series. As we get started this morning, I don't know if this will encourage you or discourage you, but I think we are related. I've been doing some research and we are related. And I'm not talking about, you know, Eve is our mother and all that kind of stuff, or we're brothers and sisters in Christ, things along those lines. There's actually another characteristic or trait that I think identifies and tells me that we are part of the same family. That trait is this. We have all done some really dumb things. And I've talked to some of you, and you've told me about the dumb things you've done, and I've shared some of mine. You may remember me sharing early on that, that I once snorted Coke up my nose, as in Coca-Cola through a straw, not, not the other kind you may think of. And yes, it burns, was, was not a pleasant experience. I shared with you another situation where I stood inside a door jam one day, thought I would jump up and just lightly touch the top of my head on this door frame and compress my spine by about an inch and a half. And not, not too smart on, on my part to do that. And sometimes we know instantly that we made a bad decision. That was not a smart thing to do. But, you know, sometimes we don't come to that realization until a little bit later in life. I was driving down the interstate one day, and I have no idea why, but I thought back to something in my teen years, and I thought, that was really not very smart. As a matter of fact, that may be one of the dumbest things that you have ever done in your life, son. What in the world were you thinking a decade ago? And I was thinking about a time that it was about a week after the 4th of July. And I know it was a week after 4th of July because I got together with some of my buddies. And we began to talk and we realized that we had a bunch of bottle rockets left over from the 4th of July. So with just a little bit of, uh, of research and some resourcefulness, we also discovered that we had, Shelly, you need to cover the kids' ears, by the way, my, my own children here. We had enough two-liter bottles for each person to have one and enough lighters to give each of us. So we made our way to this old barn, and we divided up into teams, and we played bottle rocket tag that afternoon. And a decade later, driving down the interstate, what dawned on me was all of the flammable material around this old barn. There was straw and hay and gasoline and oil and who knows what other flammable liquid around there, not to mention the fact that bottle rockets being aimed directly at you was not a smart thing to be doing. And as I thought about this, I offered just one of those prayers that, that you may have mentioned before, God, thank you for protecting me from my own stupidity. 
I'm glad that I'm still here today with all of my appendages and all my, you know, being able to, to see and all this kind of stuff. What was I thinking? And sometimes we make a dumb decision and we know right away, sometimes it takes a little longer for us to realize that it wasn't a good decision. But either way, we've all made decisions that we wish we could undo or forget. Have you not? I see some of you nodding already, and I'm always at the doors after the service. So I want you to come by and share with me some of the dumb things that you've done before so I don't feel so alone in this. But, you know, we've all spent money we wish we hadn't spent. Some of us have bought cars we wish we had never bought. We've invested in things that we wish we had never invested in. We've accepted invitations that we look back on and we wish we hadn't accepted. We've had jobs that we wish we hadn't taken. We, we've entered into partnerships that we wish we hadn't entered into. We've, we've made phone calls that, that we wish we'd never returned. And we've signed contracts that we wish we had never signed. And some decisions we just chalk up to youthful ignorance. Well, well I just didn't know any better, you know, just living life, doing things, and it just sort of happened. But in some instances... We were old enough to know better. And worse yet, sometimes there were godly, mature, caring persons who tried to talk us out of making decisions. But we wouldn't listen because we knew better or we thought we were going to be the exception to the rule and to the statistics in this. And so we entered into this situation. And you know, sometimes... Our bad decisions embarrass us. We can be embarrassed at some of the decisions we've made. How many of you have ever, and you're probably not going to raise your hand because you're embarrassed by this, but have ever made four payments of $24.95 on something that you wish you'd never made four payments of $24.95 on? I think of most recently the shake weight that's out. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be so healthy from the, the, the shake weight. You know, you've got some sit-up machine around, you know, that's going to rip your abs in three days of just 10 minutes apiece and all this stuff. Or, or the ever classic, the thigh master. How many of you ever put a thigh master in a yard sale? All right. Yeah. So, so some decisions, they, they kind of embarrass us, but some decisions scar us. 24.95 hurts four times. $25,000 in credit card debt inflicts pain for decades and may even last for a lifetime. And there's an old adage kind of connected to this. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say this, but they say, wisdom only comes from experience. Wisdom only comes from experience. You go, man, that's great. Well, how do I get experience? And they say, and experience only comes from making bad decisions. And you go, oh, really? There, there, there's not a way to short circuit to bypass this? And I mean, is, is just that the, that the way it is in life? Are we doomed to this thing where we make bad decisions and we learn a lesson from it and then the next time we don't make a bad decision or at least a little not as bad decision as the first time before? But then asking ourselves, ultimately, if you kind of follow that conclusion to it, it says, well, you gain, with wisdom, you gain experience to the point that you don't make any more bad decisions. And is that true? I mean, can we get to a point where, where we don't make bad decisions? Are we ever immune from making poor choices? 
And while it's not foolproof, I think asking and then acting upon our answers to the best question ever can be a huge step in the right direction. I hadn't known this question more than five minutes before I thought, man, I wish I had known and applied this question years ago. So let's get to the verse that reveals the foundation, the principle for asking the best question ever. In the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul talks about and and highlights and describes the incredible salvation that we have received through Jesus Christ, that he died for us. We can be adopted uh, as sons and daughters of God. It's by grace. You can't do anything to earn the salvation you received. It's a wonderful description of our salvation. But he also reminds the believers at Ephesus, that this salvation that they have received through Jesus Christ also comes with a responsibility. They are to live out this salvation, this faith they've received in Jesus Christ. Another word that you'll hear used frequently, I use it frequently, but I only use it frequently because the Bible teaches it, is to walk. We we are to walk and to, to live out and to demonstrate our faith. We're to walk in our faith and our salvation in Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you if you have time to sit and just read through the, the entire book of Ephesians. It's, it's not a long book in the Bible, but just sit, take your time, go through, highlight, make notes of what God may say to you. Uh, the first three chapters are really good in this description of salvation, but chapter two, starting in verse eight, kind of gives a good summary of all that's there. Chapter two, verse eight, Paul says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And he tells us why that is verse nine, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Because here's the thing, if we could earn our salvation, then some of us would think we're better than others. We've earned a better salvation. We worked harder. We paid more. We did, you know, more uh, works of whatever. So there would be this hierarchy there based on what we've done. And Paul says, no, 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 none of you work for it. So you're all on equal footing. You're on the footing at the base of the cross where Jesus died for you. So we don't work for our salvation. But he tells us here in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, here's that word, walk in them. We should walk in these good words as we demonstrate the salvation that we've received through Jesus Christ. Well, Ephesians chapter four, Paul begins to turn a corner. He's no longer just describing salvation, but he begins illustrating what their transformed lives should look like. He says, as you walk and live out your faith, here are some evidences. Here are some things that this faith is going to look like as you live them out in life. And you may have heard this quote before, St. Francis of Assisi, I think summed this thought up well. He said, in everything, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Man, that's a great statement. You need to really think and digest that. In everything, preach the gospel, that Jesus loves people, that he died on the cross for them, that people are invited to come and place their faith in him to become children of God. In everything, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. As your actions display your faith in Christ and show the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life. So the question becomes, how is that evidenced? How am I displaying the salvation that I've received in Jesus Christ? And in chapter four, Paul begins to give some very specific examples 
of how we practice and we live out our faith. He says in chapter one, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. Here's this word again, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He adds here in verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I'll tell you, that's a pretty tall order right there. I mean, Paul, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, if he stopped the chapter right there, we look at that and go, whew, man, that's a lot. I mean, look at what Paul says. These should be evidenced in your life. He says, humility and gentleness. How many of you have ever said you know, I, 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 I'm as good as, as anybody in this area, and I say that with great humility. You know, humility and pride, we wrestle with that a lot of times. We, we want to thump our chest and go, well, look what I did. We kind of get filled with that pride, and Paul says, no, no, you practice with, with humility and gentleness. He adds to that patience. Hello? As I talk to people about the fruit of the Spirit, I hear this one all the time. Yeah, just the Lord needs to really increase my patience. So we got patience that's there. Uh, He goes on and says, bearing with one another in love. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, these neighbors, these people sitting around you. We're to love each other. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace, unity of the spirit as we love one another. I mean, did Paul not know that Baptists were going to read this? And when you get two Baptists together, you got three opinions. I mean, I mean, come on, Paul, you, you, you get unity in that? What, we're to be unified? You know, what we do? What is he talking about? How do you do this? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he illustrates this faith that walks with Christ by applying it to everything from marriage to alcohol, to sexuality, to our speech. He even talks about what we laugh and joke about. I mean, it's a pretty comprehensive list of things that Paul covers in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 as he says, live out your faith in these ways, in these areas of your life. I mean, it's pretty comprehensive, but at the same time, it can be a little bit discouraging. You can look at this list and you can read these things that Paul talks about and go, man, I don't think I can do that. Because I know myself, I know my weaknesses, and I know my tendencies, and I know where I fall short. And and Paul sets the bar high in this stuff, so high that I think a lot of people look at these things and they give up before they ever even start because the expectations seem so unrealistic. Just read with me as I rattle off some of this stuff. I'm not going to go through these things in detail, but I encourage you to go back and and really reflect on, meditate on these things. Ephesians 4, verse 13, and these are just a couple of things. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Paul says you shouldn't look like the people of the world. 
people should see you and they should see a difference. And the difference they should see is the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life. Now, that's a pretty serious question to ask and say, do people see the difference that Jesus has made in my life? Look at verse 26 in this chapter. Oh, this one hits home. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Road rage ring a bell when you read this verse on anger and dealing with our anger and not sinning. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Can I get an amen? Let no corrupting talk, Paul says, come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, there should be a filter between your brain and your mouth. And if what you're going to say doesn't build up and edify and encourage, it needs to get shut down. Now, some of our filters are smaller and more fine than others are granted, but, but there still should be this, that, that no corrupting talk would come out of our mouths. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, huh, he mentions that one twice in this chapter, interesting, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So those are the things to not do in verse 31. Verse 32, the things that we should do. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God. What? I'm supposed to be like God? How am I going to do that? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. There's that word again. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And he's just piling on here. Look in, look in verse 3. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God becomes, comes upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, and, and look on down here a little bit. He says in verse, where did I go here? I lost my part. Verse 15, he turns the corner. All right, got myself confused here. Uh, in verse 15, Paul uh, begins to talk about how we do this stuff. I and mean, you look at these things and you go, how do I do this? It's an impossible. There, there's no way I can live up to these standards. And it's like Paul can hear you saying this. So he lays the foundation for this best question ever. And then he finishes out the book by applying it to, to marriage and our family and other relationships. He says this in Ephesians 5 verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So he lays the foundation for the best question ever. Did you see it? Did you see that foundation that's there? Well, let's look at these two verses a little closer. He says, look carefully then how you walk. 
My dad taught me to hunt as I was growing up, and one of the key things that he taught me to do when we started hunting was he taught me how to walk in the woods so as not to scare off the game that we were hunting. He taught me what to step on, what would you know be quieter, make less noise, what not to step on because breaking twigs and leaves and crunching under your feet, those type things would scare the game away. So he taught me where to step, where not to step. He also taught me to look up and pay attention to where I was going so that I could get to where I wanted to be, but I could also avoid big obstacles or things that were going to make noise or just be annoying like spider webs. Any of you ever hunt and walk through spider webs? hate that sensation of cross your face. It gives me shivers just thinking about it. So he taught me to always assess my surroundings and know where I was going, but he also taught me to keep an eye on where I wanted to be because you can get so focused on looking and stepping with your feet. You look up and go, oh man, I wanted to be on that tree over there, you know? So you got to keep that focus. And those are three things that we think about here when we talk about, and when Paul says, look carefully then how you walk as you go through life, be careful where you step. Pay attention to where your feet are going and what, uh, what direction they're taking you in life. Secondly, assess your surroundings. Assess your surroundings and focus on where you want to go. Where do you want to be in life? Where do you want to, to serve? Who do you want to serve? Asking these questions as you think carefully about how you walk. Paul says that we are to walk not as unwise, but as wise. So walking is a call to action. It's not standing still. It's a call to movement. And we need to be smart. We need to be wise in the decisions we make and the steps we take. Well, why does it matter if we're wise or unwise in the steps that we take and the things that we do? Well, Paul says we need to make the most of the time, which means we need to be as effective as possible. Because time is short. The Bible says that our life is like a vapor or it's like the fog in the morning. What happens on a really foggy morning? You wake up and you go, oh, it's foggy outside. But you don't go, oh, no, it's the end of the world and nothing's going to grow. And how are we going to live because it's foggy today? Because you know what? Before long, a few minutes, a few hours, depending on what time you get up and see the fog, the fog's going to be gone. Fog doesn't stick around forever. It lasts for a time and it lifts and it's gone. And the Bible says our life is like that fog. It's over before you know it. How many of us are are watching the years click by and going, man, I I remember thinking as a child that that 30 years old was such an old person. And then when I got to 30, I thought, wow, 30 is really young compared to what I used to think, you know, and every age that as I move on in in increments of five passing, I'm going, hmm, the older I get, the younger that age is, you know, Uh, but time goes by quickly. And Paul says, we need to make the best use of our time. And why do we do that? Because he ends by saying, because the days are evil. The days are evil. It's a reminder that walking with and walking for Christ, friends, it won't get easier. It will get harder the closer we get to the return to Christ. Persecution, the Bible says, will increase for those who follow Christ. People's receptivity to the gospel will decrease and they'll begin to follow false teachers who, who tickle their ears and tell them the things that they want to hear. There'll be teachers and, and megachurch pastors who will say people, everybody winds up in heaven anyway because love wins in the end. And so don't worry about Jesus now. You can deal with it later. That There's no reason that you should call upon his name now. We have others who tell you that, that God wants to bless you with wealth and prosperity and God wants you to be happy because the Bible says the chief end of man is to be happy, right? 
no, the Bible doesn't say that. These are these false teachers who, who say what people want to hear, and that's the climate, that's the culture we live in. That's why these words are so important. We need to walk carefully. We need to walk wisely and effectively because people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so they can place their faith and their trust in him. And we do that by asking and then applying this best question ever. And this question was so impactful that I added it to my daily challenge for my kids. Anna, where's Anna? Oh, there she is right here. She moved down. Anna, come on up here. I take the kids to school uh, most mornings, and as we pull up, uh, something that uh, I've always felt is important as a parent is I want to kind of give a daily challenge, and there's, there's the thing that I wanted my kids to remember uh, every day uh, as they hear the last thing uh, as they get out of the car. I want them to know this and to think about this throughout the day, and I went decades when I'm gone. I want them to be thinking about these challenges, these thoughts uh, that their father repeated over and over again so that it becomes second nature for them. So I've had this daily this sentence that I've I've spoken to them for a long time, but when I read the best question ever, I thought, I want my kids to know and to be able to ask and apply this question as they go through life. And some of you are going, oh man, his kids knew I could have bribed them this week, you know, to find out, you know, what the question is. Although Caleb gave it out in Awana on Wednesday night to all of his buddies in there. So some of your kids may have came home, but Anna, when I drop you guys off at school, what's the first thing I tell you before you get out of the car? Be Be leaders for Jesus. That's right. And then I say, (laughs) <laughs> She's like, what is the second thing you say? I don't know. I always always say, I say, be leaders for Jesus and ask, what's the wise thing to do? And then I say, and then do it. And then do it. That's right. And then do it. All right. Thank you, honey. Appreciate it. The best question ever based on Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 15, to walk not as unwise, but as wise is what's the wise thing to do? Pretty simple. Some of you are going, oh, that's it? The best question ever is, what's the wise thing? Are you kidding me? It's false advertisement. You know, that's not all that great a question. And, but, but before you dismiss it as too simplistic, I want you to stop and think about something. Think about our decision-making process and the questions we ask often as we approach decisions in our life. We will oftentimes, if we want to make a Christ-centered, God-honoring, biblical sound decision, we will ask is it wrong? Is it wrong? Does the Bible say I can't or shouldn't do this activity? And if the Bible doesn't prohibit it, then that must mean we can do it, right? Well, there's part of the logic because as we begin to ask this question, is it, is it wrong? It can begin to move us onto a slippery slope because actually we kind of then begin saying, well, is it wrong? Well, no, it's not wrong. And the slippery slope kind of leads us to a next question to say, well, if it's not wrong, then how close can I get to the line between right and wrong without getting myself into trouble? Or, or we kind of phrase it in the church this way, how close to sin can I get without actually sinning? So you see this slippery slope that begins to draw us in. Is it wrong? What's not wrong? Well, if it's not wrong, then I can take a step this way. Well, if this step is fine, is this step okay? Here's the line. I don't want to cross over the line. So we want to get right up to the line, and then we're human beings. We have feelings. We have emotions. We can rationalize our way into anything. You ever thought about that? We're going to talk some more about rationalizing decisions here in the next couple of weeks. I am an expert at rationalizing my decisions. I am an expert 
at rationalizing my decisions. I'm one of the wisest people that I know for this very gift. And so we get up close to the line and then we kind of begin to talk ourselves into, and before long we, we, we make decisions and we have stepped over this line and we kind of stand right here and we begin to go, huh, it's not really as bad as I thought it would be. And then we begin asking another series of questions. Well, how far over the line can I go before I start experiencing unwanted or undesirable consequences? How unethical, how immoral, how insensitive can I be before I suffer undesirable consequences? Think about this question. How long can I neglect my family? How long can I neglect my finances? How long can I neglect my job duties and responsibilities before suffering negative repercussions? How far over the speed limit can I drive before I get a ticket? Mr. Rob, you want to, no, I'm just kidding, one of our police officers here. Is it five or seven miles an hour that you guys get? What's that cushion? We can ask these questions. Oh, y'all have asked that question too. My, my bad. How much can I indulge in this addictive behavior before I get addicted? You know, it's a slippery slope. And if we'll take a moment and just peek over the ledge at the bottom of this slope, we'll see the carnage and the wreckage in the lives of people who are trying to pick up the pieces in the valley down there. And they're dazed and they're confused. In church, they are asking a question that I have heard people ask more times than I care to count with tears in their eyes and some of the most gut-wrenching sobs you can imagine. Have I seen men and women sit in an office or visited our home? And they're asking a different question. They're saying, how did I get myself into this? Or how did I let this happen? And these are smart people. Some of them are, they're smarter than the average intelligence. The issue isn't an IQ problem. An issue is a walking problem. Asking the wrong questions and responding to the wrong questions. What is the wise thing to do? Let me just give you a couple of quick hits and a couple of thoughts on this. And then, as I said, the next three weeks, I'm going to take and I'm going to apply this question to a number of different uh, situations that, that we all encounter and we wrestle with as we go through life. But the first thing, and I know some of you have already started going, oh, yeah, well, burr, 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 and I can tell you're doing the mental gymnastics and you're wrestling, you're asking this question already. You're saying, oh, yeah, well, whose opinion based on what's the wise thing to do? You know, your opinion of wise, their opinion of wise. You know, I talked to three of my buddies and they all said this, so they all think that's the wise thing to do. Whose opinion determines what's wise? That's a good question. That's a good question. As you go through the book of Proverbs, and we'll hit on Proverbs because there's some great wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs describes wisdom as a person. It's a personification and describes characteristics and traits of wisdom as a person. Jesus Christ is the personification of wisdom. He is God in the flesh, so he is the source of wisdom. So what is the wise thing to do based on what would Jesus 
have me do? What does the Bible say about this issue, this situation, this question is before me? What's the wise thing to do based on God's word and the person and the example of Jesus Christ? Once we know the wise thing to do, then the Bible says we will be blessed if we do those things. So let's look at just a couple of things. What is the wise thing to do with my time? talked about time, make, make the best use of it. What's the wise thing for me to do with my time? Well, what does Jesus say is the, the, the greatest commandment in all of scripture? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. So as we apply that to our time, what's the wise thing for me to do with my time? If the greatest commandment is to love God, the wisest use of my time can be to seek after God, to spend time in relationship with him. Is it not? What's the wise thing to do with my time is to seek after God. What else is a wise thing to do with my time? Well, the Bible uh, uses the word work as a four-letter word that we're supposed to do. Work is in there in Scripture. The Bible tells us to work at all that we do, work in whatever we do as serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So work is part of that. Well, I need to work. I can't, if I don't, you don't have money, what's the wise thing to do? It's to work, and it's to give your all to your work. What else is a wise thing to do with your time? Well, the Bible says that uh, it's important for parents to raise their children with an understanding of God and and to to lead in their homes, husbands to lead their wives and to love their wives and set a good example for their children. So it would be a wise thing to do for us to invest in our family relationships, would it not? Well, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, what's the wise thing to do with my time? We've worked. We've spent time with God. We have a chunk of time in our evenings on the weekends. What's the wise thing to do with my time? I can sit on the couch and watch television. Is it wrong for me to do that? Depends on what you're watching. Maybe we can argue about that. But is it wrong to watch television? No. may not be wrong to watch television. But that time that you're watching television is time you're not spending with your wife and with your children. Well, everybody needs a little downtime. I'm not arguing about downtime. How much downtime do you have? Ask that question. And if you're going to consider that downtime, how much uptime do you have with your wife and with your children? So you see how this, what's the wise thing to do, kind of cuts through some of the self-deception. It's not a fun thing to walk through this exercise, but what's the wise thing to do with my time? What's the wise thing to do for my health? We're going to get a little meddling right here. The Bible says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And as a temple of the Holy Spirit, should we care for the Lord's house and the Lord's temple? Yes, we should. So what's the wise thing to do for my body? Well, what does Scripture teach about that? Scripture teaches us a lot of things about that. Rest is a part of of what's taught there. So so to give ourselves that time for rest, for refreshment, probably probably part of caring for our body would would consist and we would think about our diet what we eat, what's the wise thing for me to eat. That's not fun to think about. We used to watch The Biggest Loser, but we quit because I always felt bad about drinking my milkshake, watching them on there working out so hard. Man, that's rough. Was eating ice cream a sin? No, there's nothing wrong with eating ice cream. But I've eaten gallons of ice cream telling myself I need to live a little bit. And when I weigh and say, what's the wise thing to do? How much ice cream did I eat this week? And how many vegetables did I eat this week? Put those on a scale or step on the scale. That'll tell you right there. So what's the wise, what's the wise thing to do for, for caring for my body? How's exercise in your life? Exercise. What's he talking about? 
what, what is that? What's the wise thing to do with your time? Maybe part of that would be exercise. Well, I need to sleep in and be rested today. Well, yeah, you do. I understand. But what's the wise thing to do? And then evaluate your life. One of the best ways to determine is to not just think about going forward, but look back over the course of the last week. Well, I know I got all this. Well, how much did you exercise or eat well or or do these things in the last week? Because your past performance is your best indicator of your future performance as well. So you see how this question is going to work. We're going to apply this to say, what's the wise thing to do morally? What's the wise thing to do financially? What's the wise thing to do relationally? We'll look at those three things, those three areas in the upcoming week. There may be nothing wrong with something, but is it wise for you, for your relationship with Christ, for your testimony, for the sake of the gospel? Are the wheels turning for you already? Are you kind of thinking about this and, and applying it to a couple of areas? I, I hope that you are. I wonder if some of you are already saying, man, if I had asked what's the wise thing to do and then acted upon that, what might I have done instead of buying the car or signing the papers or, or accepting the invitation or, or making that investment? What if I had asked that question, really wrestled and, and thought it through, checked scripture, what would it be like today? If I had done that. So I want to leave you with that thought in your mind today. What's the wise thing to do? But then I want to ask one final question and apply it this morning. What's the wise thing to do spiritually? What's the wise thing to do spiritually? Not on my opinion, not on your neighbor's opinion. What does this book say? In this book, the personification of wisdom Wisdom as a person said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he said. Now, if he said that and it wasn't true and he knew that, then he was a liar. And who would follow a liar if he lied about that? What else might he have lied about? Maybe he really thought that, but he was just kind of deceived. You know, we call those people delusional. Uh, maybe he was just delusional. Well, if he was delusional on that thinking he was God's son when really he wasn't, then how truthful is everything else that he taught in this book? Or maybe, just maybe, he was who he said he was. Maybe he was God in the flesh. And when he said there, there's no way to the Father except through him, maybe he meant it. And if he meant it, how did he say we do that? He said we do that by believing in him, by believing that his death paid the price for our sins and by placing our faith in him and inviting him into our lives. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within us and we become that temple of the Holy Spirit. And then we walk and we live out our faith for the sake of the gospel so that others can know and hear and experience what we've experienced What's the wise thing to do spiritually? It's to submit and surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've never done that, then the Bible says that day can be the day of salvation, that there'll be great rejoicing with God and the angels as you give your life to Christ and you begin your new life in him. And so I want to invite you in just a moment as we have a time of invitation and we call it an invitation 
for the very simple reason that you are invited to respond to the work of God in your life. And maybe it's to come today and receive salvation and become a child of God, begin growing and walking in a relationship with him. But the invitation also may be for you to come and to say, Lord, I I want to fully surrender. I want to be wholly surrendered to you and your will and your plan for my life. And I know I'm not where I need to be. And Lord, I want to grow in that. I want to do a better job walking and preaching the gospel. And if necessary, using words, I'm not the example that I need to be because I know I'm supposed to be different from the world. But Lord, I have to confess today that I'm not very different from the world at all. And I want that to change. I want to be different because of what you've done in my life. And so maybe you want to come and and recommit, renew your commitment, your relationship with Christ. Maybe God's been leading you uh, to unite with this church so that you can grow in your faith and your knowledge for him and and help us accomplish the, the mission and the task that God has called us to in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. I don't know what decisions God may have been speaking to your heart about through this week or through this time today or in the last month, but if you need to respond today, then I'm going to encourage you to walk, to step out in obedience, to step out in faith and say, Lord, yes, what's the wise thing for me to do? The wise thing for me to do is to live my life for you. So Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit myself to stepping out in faith, walking wisely so that people might come to know Jesus Christ.